All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Glad you could be here. I am Shannon. Uh, I'm on staff here. Um, James is out camping this week, so he's asked me to fill in for him uh, as we tackle a really fun topic. So uh, this morning we're talking about something that each of us has experienced and we will all continue to experience no matter how godly or great we are, everyone fails. Maybe this morning. (laughs) We all have unfulfilled dreams and desires, each and every one one of us can relate here, so When I started checking around for someone to share a testimony, as we've been doing through this series, I was pretty confident this shouldn't be too hard to find. But then I ran into the awkwardness of the situation. Everyone has a story of failure, but how do you ask for that, (laughs) right? Um, Hey, Cooper, I'm speaking on failure, and uh, I thought of you. (laughs) Right, or... uh, Peggy, I know your life goals are in shambles. You want to share about that in public? (laughs) Not exactly a recipe for demand. But in all seriousness, uh, the willingness from people from our body to share intimate and difficult parts of their lives through this whole series absolutely is amazing to me. Uh, I'm grateful for it because it deepens the understanding of how we collectively live out our faith in tough circumstances and how it grows the bond between us as a body. So today, in spite of my awkwardness, uh, Peter Bond, incidentally, our elder candidate, has agreed to read his, uh, the scripture passage and share a bit of his story uh, with us. So uh, welcome, Peter, on up. on okay i'm sure that was a a sick joke by shannon to uh which date should we announce the candidacy and then uh let's ask him to share about failure on the same day and maybe we'll get some good feedback um so today's scripture is uh from first samuel 30 1 through 6 david and his men reached uh ziklag and on the third day now after the Amalekites had raided uh, the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as if they were on their way, as they were, went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured uh, Anome of Zezreel and Abigail, the widow of uh, Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were taking, talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So the story of failure that I chose of, of many um, was... Uh, a story of uh, a nonprofit organization called Hope Overflowing that uh, my wife Chris and I uh, co-founded with a, a good friend of ours um, in, in Ethiopia. And uh, that story starts um, with our adoption story. And oh, many of you know uh, we have three boys from Ethiopia from two different adoptions. Um, and there was a saying I, that, uh, or a prayer, you know, that, uh, you know, God break my heart for what breaks yours. And, uh, um, that that definitely happened for us at, at that time during that first adoption, and um, uh, 
one of the things that came out of that was uh, just like a heart for uh, broken kids. Um, and these were kids that were actually nearing adulthood, honestly. Um, for those of you who know, our boys were adopted at a very late age. Um, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, rolling through town, uh, maybe that first taxi ride from the airport, uh, and there's thousands of kids, uh, mostly boys, on the streets. Um, and uh, filthy and, uh, and, and begging and stealing or whatever. And many of them um, uh, huffing diesel uh, from little bottles in their sleeves, and um, and they're an invisible population in that in that city. And uh, um, our friend in, in uh, that we had we had become good friends with through through those adoptions had uh, kind of been out on the street just making uh, making contact with these guys, and honestly, nobody uh, even touches them. The locals are um, they're like dogs, you know. Um, and so for anybody to show any sort of compassion for them or have interest in them was, was um, a big deal. And uh, on one of our trips there, he said, would you guys like to um, go uh, get lunch with some of these guys? And so we sat in a little roadside uh, cafe um, and just heard their stories uh, one by one of uh, absolute heartbreak. Um, and so that began a, a three-year journey of um, formalizing an organization to see what we could do to to affect those lives. Um, I'll never forget. It was uh, maybe six months after that trip, um, and our friend had an opportunity to come to the states, and he was in in our in our kitchen table, and we were just talking about this stuff, and it was almost like God was sitting with you. You know, you have those moments where the Holy Spirit is so clear, um, and that was where sort of hope overflowing was born. And in that, um, I kind of had the role of president. Um, and our, um, our, our good friend was sort of managing operations in the country. And, um, and from there, God, like, uh, I mean, it was an amazing uh, um, progress of, like, uh, unheard of things that happened. Um, and we very, very quickly had a house, uh, a house that we outgrew and had to move to another house. Um, we had uh, staff there, um, I think at the height of it, maybe six uh, full-time staff. And... Um, we had we had to buy a car. We had to get kids to medical uh, things and um, and job trainings and all kinds of stuff. And it, it was an incredible, like exponential growth that was um, uh, about three years in was starting to get strained. Um, and I am an engineer by trade and and wiring up here, uh, and I was working very closely with a visionary evangelist. Uh, someone who had a massive heart for his people um, and a huge heart for God. But if you've ever, you know, some of you who are those engineering realist type people and you are closely related to or married to or a visionary, um, like sometimes it's hard to slow them down and you're, you're like, the numbers don't add up. Uh, uh, we can't do that. And they're like, you need to stop me from moving forward. Um, and so... Um, there were things going on in our life as well, family-wise, that was really uh, a struggle, and things were going on in his life that were the same. And it was one of these things where almost as quickly as it had grown and was finding favor in God, we were struggling. Um, and uh, I think everybody involved in this was had good intentions and was following God. And uh, so it was really hard to, to start having problems with trust. Um, and... 
um, you know, even some arguments and, and, and uh, personal attacks uh, and from people who you, who you were good friends with and you were seeing friendships starting to really uh, crack under pressure. And um, it, it, it all came to a point where uh, it was like a massive weight uh, that was just dragging me down. And I couldn't sleep. Uh, Krista, she can tell you it was um, just an immense thing. Anytime I thought of the word hope overflowing, I just almost physically felt ill. Um, and nothing I could do was right. Everything I tried to do, even with good intentions, was causing more strife. Um, and so finally, I, I presented to our board the idea that maybe we could... Um, partner with another ministry already operating in Ethiopia that had better bandwidth, better leadership, uh, more experience, and we could, um, we could pass that off. And at that point, our, my friend, you know, basically said that, you know, you need to go or I'm going to go. And I, honestly, the, the decision was easy at that point because it was making me physically sick, uh, the stress and everything. And so, uh, but it was very, very hard to be involved in something that like was so clearly from God and you saw God's blessing and you just couldn't understand why all of this was happening. But, but God, but in the midst of that, amazing things were happening and um, we, had, uh, we had these street boys. I guess I didn't really explain that very well, but they had come to live at the house. These guys were getting meals. They were getting medical attention. Those that could go to school were going to school. Lives were being changed all being shared the gospel at the same time, our entire staff showing them the love of Jesus every day. Um, kids uh, went through trade schools, ended up welding, carpentry. Uh, they got skills, they got jobs, they got adult, they began to adult uh, and, and home, uh, cohabitate in apartments together and actually have a life where three years ago they were consistently high on, on diesel fumes. Um, eyes that were blank were were now open and so amazing things happened but it really crumbled um sorry i'm getting off my notes <laughs> trying to cram this into five minutes or less um so yes amazing things but those questions of failure were like were were immense like why did we have to go through this where did i screw up um did I let my pride get in the way? Uh, you know, did I fail God? Did God give me something and I just couldn't do it? I couldn't take it to the finish line? And honestly, those questions still um, are still there. I don't feel like the but God has been completely answered. Um, and even just being asked to share about this uh, kind of dredged up a lot of stuff that I think I had mentally turned off. And Chris and I kind of had to sit and go, what, what happened again? So... Um, yeah, it was a tough situation, and yeah, still wondering, and maybe we won't see on the side of heaven the the ultimate, but God. So, thanks. Cool. Thanks, Peter. I know that uh, that was tough, and um, I, I know that how you felt God's hand in that ministry. I know that he was in that, and um, having that taken from your hands is a difficult thing. So um, let's, uh, 
Let's talk about that story that, uh, that Peter read uh, from 1 Samuel. We'll go back to that just for a minute. Um, and let me kind of set the stage for uh, David and uh, the, the episode at Ziklag there. So if you don't know the story, you don't know the backstory to it, David was anointed uh, uh, quite a bit of time before. He was anointed as the future king. Uh, king Saul uh, was there, but David was going to be his, his successor. Uh, and it, it, through, through much of the life of David, he's being pursued by Saul out of jealousy, out of rage. Um, so he's on the run, constantly trying to live to see God's promises come to light. And through this, he's developed kind of a following among warriors, among outcasts, mercenaries, uh, and they bring themselves and their families to him uh, and follow him. People that have heard about his situation sought him out and joined him where he was. And on top of all this, David's trying to garner favor to unify the kingdom, to hold things together so that he's got a kingdom left to govern at some point and fulfill God's promises. And so he's, he's working to keep these small towns, the, the various tribes and things, uh, he's trying to keep them afloat and safe from the dangers of the day, drought, attack, etc. So with this band of men that he's got, uh, the, these warriors, um, it's kind of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation, and he decides that he's going to take them into end, enemy territory to keep from being pursued by Saul. So he goes into the land of the Philistines, their mortal enemies. And while there, he pledges his allegiance to King Achish, the king of the Philistines, and he's kind of playing this dangerous game where Achish thinks that David is fighting against his own people in Judah uh, and doing Achish's bidding, when in reality, David is fighting against Judah's enemies to clear them out. Again, dangerous game. Um, and in this process, with the trust that Achish uh, has for David and his men, he gives these 600 fighting men an entire town to house their families, Ziklag. And right before the episode we read, David's fighting force has joined King Achish. King Achish has called all his armies together, and he's going to battle against King Saul. And this eventually leads to Saul's death. Um, but uh, King Achish uses David as his personal bodyguard. David and his men as his personal bodyguard. Um, very, very sticky situation. David wants nothing to do with actually having to fight against his own brothers and against the anointed king of Israel. Uh, in God's provision, uh, the generals of King Achish come to him and say, hey, this, this can't be. Uh, we don't know where his allegiance actually lies. They're jealous of the favor that he might gain. And rightly so, they say, hey, he may join King Saul and actually overthrow us. So we got to have him go. So King Achish sends them back. Um, so in relief, they head back to their homes at Ziklag. And that's where we join uh, the story in 1 Samuel. So feel free to flip there with me as we read it again. First uh, Samuel chapter 30, uh, we'll start with verses 1 through 4. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and taken captive the women and everything else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. 
So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. So they're on their way back home and they're completely unaware that Ziklag's been attacked in their absence and um, that they'd left it unprotected. Um, they, they marched this three-day, 50 to 60-mile uh, march, hoofing it back home to find everything has been destroyed, their families, all their wealth has been carried away. Scripture says that they are bitter in spirit over the loss of their families. The men are in such despair, and, and they naturally do what people do when you experience overwhelming loss. They can't fix the immediate problem. They don't have a solution there. They don't know if they ever will. They're angry, and they look for anybody to hold responsible. So they blame David for creating the scenario that led to this. Further on in five and, uh, verse 5 and 6, David, David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. So David is as much a victim in this situation as anybody else. It says he's in great distress because the men are going to take out their rage by bashing him to death with rocks. The Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe has a commentary on 1 Samuel and captures kind of the, the angst of the moment. We can but imagine the horror and grief of David and his 600 men who had never lost a battle. Their city was burned, their wealth had been confiscated, and their wives and children had been kidnapped. It was the mercy of the Lord that the Amalekites had spared the lives of the women and children, for in their raids, David and his men had certainly killed their share of enemy women and children. The verb carried them away is literally drove them off and points to the picture of animals being driven off by the herdsmen. The men wore themselves out in weeping, and David was greatly distressed. A verb that means he was pressed into a tight corner, the way a potter would press clay into a mold. So David's caught in this thing in multiple levels of blame and his his own grief and turmoil. He's being hunted by his own king. Uh, The kingdom of Judah is split in their allegiance over his future. He's hated by Judah's enemies. He's loathed by the Philistine generals um, uh, and they kind of treated indifferently by the king who he's pledged fealty to there. And now even his own men uh, have turned against him. And if that's not enough, oh yeah, his loved ones have been lost to a horrific fate. War is not kind to women and children. So this latest seeming failure is absolutely crushing. We all fail in every aspect of life. Failure doesn't always mean that we've done wrong. David was absolutely doing his best with the tools and knowledge that he had. He was trying to honor God's anointed King Saul. He was trying to do right by his men, his people, uh, the people of Judah, trying to actually have a kingdom left. He's doing all the things that he needs to do and making compromises to do it, but he's actually doing everything that he's being asked to do. He's trying to follow God and honor him and keep from going astray in the uncertainty of every moment. Now, 
don't know about you, but I, I used to have a, this picture in my head that key figures of the Bible had some direct video chat type connection with God that they verbally spoke with them and it was easy for them to figure out what to do and what not to do. Kind of like following a, a boss, um, a boss's directives or something like that. But the humanity of each of these biblical characters that we see and talk about and the messes they made, the weaknesses and failings they have show a completely different story. Some, like Moses, did commune more, uh, more intimately with God, and most, but most are just like us. They had uncertainty in the way that they should go. They had difficulty understanding and following the will of God. They lacked clarity, pain. They had pain. They had feelings of abandonment, and they were facing hardship and brokenness. We can relate to that. So in this discussion about failure, we're not dealing so much with sin-type failure, sin issues, the, the idea of moral failure here. What we're really looking at, now incidentally, stick around next week as we actually do deal with the issue of sin. What we're really exploring is defeat in life expectations, um, living up to the desires of parents, spouses, friends, family, our job, even ourselves. It's those interruptive situations where we find ourselves um, that, that have been thrust on us, health circumstances, death of a loved one, all these dreams and desires, both big and small, uh, situations that we didn't choose, and as Pastor Steve would say, uh, that chose us. So you, you may have some of these circumstances or you may have others that you've gone through or are going through right now or without a doubt we're going to go through in the future. So within those things, let me ask you, how would you, you specifically, deal with the death of a dream? As we read through the passage with David, uh, we recognize that we're the subject of the same dynamic that he is. So help me think through this in your own realistic terms, where it's not sanitized by the, the uh, conciseness of Scripture, where um, it can be easily glossed over because we're familiar with it, we know the end of the story. So imagine yourselves being in a tough scenario. Maybe that's not hard, maybe you're right in the middle of it. But imagine yourselves in a tough scenario, whether it's desired or not. So kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. Pick a health crisis, a relationship crisis, a financial crisis, whatever you want. Pick your favorite. Imagine that there's multiple layers to the situation that are so difficult that you don't truly know how best to navigate because there doesn't seem to be any possible solution. Every way of acting has negative consequences. You can't see any way to win. But you're trying to manage a terrible situation the best you can. It may require choosing the lesser of several negative outcomes. So you're digging into this situation and maybe like David where he was able to work some things out and it seemed like God was on their side and, and they, things were working. They were released from these sticky situations. Maybe like, like David, maybe you have a few successes along the way in your scenario. It's going to be okay or at least maybe it's tolerable. But then an even worse fate befalls you. Things you couldn't have anticipated or imagined come about. Bad stuff happens really bad stuff happens. 
and leave you stricken with the failure and loss of it all. And maybe in the midst of all this, you throw up your hands and you say something really stupid like, well, at least it couldn't get any worse. <laughs> Incidentally, from personal experience, don't do that. Seems like every time we think we've hit rock bottom and are relieved that things can only improve, the situation takes a turn to an even deeper and darker place. Uh, I actually saw a bumper sticker this week uh, that said, I didn't realize that rock bottom had a basement. (laughs) So in this scenario, imagine that you're blamed or you're held responsible for this thing that might be largely out of your control. Or maybe you realize that your own actions have brought this about, brought you to this point. For me, um, I have lots of failures, hundreds of them, lots of them. Um, uh, Big and small throughout my life. Uh, You may not know this about me, maybe you probably do. I'm a prideful person. I have desires and expectations for myself and how the world that revolves around me should work. It rarely does. My kids, my boys, Uh, They are stable, Christ-following young men. But as I look back on my influence in their lives, I come face-to-face with every moment of my negligence. Important words that I should have said and didn't. Terrible words that I should never have said that I did. Time that I lavished on myself rather than on them. So many failures trying to live up to how I judge myself, or even worse, how I judge other people. I I, I have, like I said, tons of examples, daily even, of ways I've made a mess of stuff. But one particular event stands out in my mind. Uh, We were going to go to dinner as a family. Uh, It's something that we didn't really get to do very often. As usual, I have a particular idea and plan in mind of what that should look like. Kind of idealistic, kind of a romantic uh, in that. But I got a plan. So we get into the car in the driveway and uh, the question of where we're going, of course, we wait till we get in the car to do that. Um, where are we going that comes up? Not surprisingly, the rest of the family's vision for what the evening should look like was completely different than my own. In that moment, I pushed back. I I wanted what I wanted. I was tired of changing what I wanted for them. So right there in that moment, I threw a gigantic temper tantrum. No different than a two-year-old, except that I have the ability to make things even uglier. I refused. I yelled. I said hurtful and cruel things for a long time. In a silent car, it just emphasized the volatility of that long outburst. Looking back, it was really destructive and really embarrassing. After way too long, I slammed out of the car and uh, the rest of the family slowly came back into the house. And I held on to that anger for the rest of the evening and if I'm honest, probably for a couple of days after. We ended up not going to dinner at all. And I, yet again, showed my kids the great example of what not to do. Incidentally, that's another thing that I'd advise against. Not a great parenting philosophy. Now, my initial expectations, and even the disagreement, it wasn't wrong. 
but the way I dealt with it, the poor way that I handled that, um, and my disappointment, that was. So this past spring, um, Cooper, my youngest, um, he, uh, he graduated, he turned 18, and he got baptized within like a month or two period. And uh, all of that, that had me kind of looking back over the past, um, th- that whole parenting period, um, as he's our last one up and out. Um, not really out, they're still all at my house. Um, but it has me kind of reminiscing and, and looking back and, and reflecting on these things. Um, and to be honest, it, it hurts. Um, that, that whole chapter of parenting is closed. It's done. What happened then is final. There's no changing that. There's no going back to that. Certainly I can try and impact that now, but um, that chapter's closed. It is what it is. And, and those failures like the driveway tantrum, they had an impact. They had an impact on relationship. Maybe it wasn't that big, um, but it does. It, it had an impact on future actions, on even their choices, my boys' choices with their future families, all of it. And I see those things and, and count that as failure. And for, for David, in his moment of despair, things play out even far worse than that to the extent that he's literally facing death by people who are completely capable of exacting the most extreme punishment and wouldn't hesitate to carry it out. For a lot of us, um, a scenario like that is just off the charts. It's something that may only happen once in a lifetime or maybe never at all. Or maybe for you, that's a pattern that's constantly present in your life. In either case, we have to ask ourselves some questions about how we dealt with the situation and where we're going next. So how do you respond? What do we do when the world we built comes crashing? What do we do when the dream we have dies? What do we do when our expectations are thwarted by reality? There's a lot of of very common, very human results and responses to the collapse of what we want. Like me, you've probably experienced most of these things. Bitterness, defiance, deeper levels of control, disappointment, depression, self-loathing, even giving up. These things overlap and compound so many of the other issues that we've dealt with in this whole series. Doubt, pain, trauma, dysfunction, anxiety, uncertainty, abandonment. Failures completely and totally intertwined with so many of these negative aspects of our lives. And if we're honest, most of these responses drive us deeper into self, deeper into our desires for control and the I wants. At least they do for me. I get defiant, I get surly, and try to figure out new ways to get back onto my original course. If I could only have done this thing or that thing or that person or that circumstance were in the way, I'd have success. But let's be honest, that's just an illusion. It's doubling down without a change of heart or motive. And it doesn't have to be that way. Failure isn't the end of the story. I don't know if you're familiar with baseball at all, but uh, if, if you know anything about it, uh, a baseball batter 
who steps to the plate to try to hit a thrown ball. Um, the best baseball batters in history fail at their job 70% of the time. In order to even be able to do what they do in game after game, uh, multiple times per game, hundreds of times throughout a season, they've had to learn to deal with failure as an integral part of their survival. Um, and, and we do too. So we've been directed to this passage oh, many times and for good reason, but uh, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. You'll recognize it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Mourning our losses, even the loss of our deep desires, and persevering, continuing to take steps, to dream, to move forward, it's all part of maturity. It's spiritual progress. Grieving rightly, and and grieving doesn't have to be just grieving the death of someone. It can actually be the death of a dream. Grieving rightly leads to healing. Um, Falling on your face, failing, it isn't fun. We don't want that. We certainly don't choose that course, but um, and, and using our own wisdom and avoiding those pitfalls in the first place, absolutely the right thing and what we want to do. But when we fail, going through failure isn't the end. We can continue to learn and grow and become more resilient and resistant to those negative effects of failing. Going back to the Samuel scripture passage, um, we look at uh, the second half of verse 6. It is the but God moment for this story. So in David's anguish over the situation, it says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. I'm a practical person. When I look at that, I wonder, all right, what does it mean to be strengthened? In the middle of the darkest hour where you've been brought low, either physically, emotionally, relationally, how do you actually find strength to carry on to try again? to just even get up in the morning? The answer? You don't grasp at strength, even the Lord's. So often I see things like David found strength and it equates to me, um, I I think of the process I go through. I acknowledge God is strong, right? God, we know you're strong. We know you're you're, um, omnipotent. So then I, I pray about strength, And then I try harder to be strong. That ain't it. That's just me trying to use my own strength. So what what does it mean then to be strengthened? How do you do it? I think you surrender. You embrace the weakness. You recognize the situation from a different perspective. God's. Paul, in the New Testament, addresses the issue of God's strength in his letter to the Corinthians. He's speaking here of uh, some amazing revelations that he was given. He was actually called up to heaven. Um, Don't know if it was in body or just in spirit, but he was given a supernatural vision. And in that, uh, as any person would do, the unnatural inclination is to have intense pride over that. 
So in this passage, he's sharing about that, that boasting and how he tries to combat that. He contrasts it with his own per- personal and spiritual failures. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the ones I talked about, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, that was given me a thorn in the flesh, flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Considering this, I employed the Lord, implored the Lord, sorry, implored the Lord, Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is so counterintuitive and so like the things of God. It seems like foolishness in the wisdom of man. But Paul recognizes that as a vessel for the Lord's intentions, we're more open to being effective when he's visible more than we are. Imagine, or remember back to Steve, Pastor Steve's illustration of the clay pot with the cracks that let the light shine through. Our weakness highlights God's strength in us. We're more readily able to admit to being incapable and point to God's sufficiency when we face failure for what it is. Think back to that baseball batter that I mentioned. If that batter steps into the, the plate and is twisted up inside with doubt because he struck out the last time he was up, he's more likely to do it again. Instead, the batter steps to the plate, locks in and remembers the instructions he was given. He remembers his extensive training. He remembers his God-given skills. And he settles on the newness of the moment, expecting to hit the ball even when logic dictates that he probably won't. Like that batter, we don't have to be broken by failure or circumstance. We just have to be open. Instead of dwelling in our own pity, instead of choosing to identify as broken, we step up to the plate and see ourselves through God's perspective instead as open and available, surrendered. Uh, One of my favorite authors and uh, pastors is uh, Paul Tripp. Um, And from a devotion that he sent out uh, just uh, about a month ago, he addresses this issue, I think, in a brilliant way. Uh, I'll read that. The fact is that the vast majority of our dreams simply die. They crumble before we ever get a chance to experience or enjoy them. They do this because the real world doesn't behave the way the world of our imagination does. In our fantasy world, there aren't any obstacles or uh, competitors in the way of my dream. But in the real world, there are many deep valleys and high peaks between vision and realization. I'm not in control and people don't always do my bidding. The real world is a place of unrealized dreams and unfulfilled plans. Why do dreams die? First, our created world is a broken place and therefore does not operate the way God originally designed it. Second, because people do bad things to one another. Need I write more? I know you have experienced this. But here's perhaps the most significant reason why dreams die, because there is a God. Nothing exists outside the scope of his plan. Everything lives under his careful orchestration. 
Therefore, it's impossible to, dry, to arrive at any situation before God because he's everywhere, controlling all things according to his wise counsel and for the purpose of his glory. As much as he's blessed us with the capacity to dream, imagine, and cast vision, our will is not ultimate. The death of a dream doesn't mean that it was so exceedingly sinful and selfish that God is now punishing you by killing your plan. It's not wrong to dream if embedded in your dream is a remembrance of who you are and who God is. I am a creature. He is creator. You are human. He is sovereign. We are finite. He is infinite. The best way to respond to the death of a dream is to entrust your disappointment, grief, and pain to your Lord who governs them for his glory and for your ultimate good. That surrender that I mentioned before, it's something that sounds a lot like losing. We talked about giving up earlier as a response to failure. Allowing ourselves to be at the mercy, uh, giving up is, is related to despair. Giving up is allowing ourselves to be at the mercy of any force we contact. And it's different from surrender. Surrender is recognizing the supremacy of one particular force, God. And really, spiritual surrender is embracing the weakness in us and relinquishing the willful parts of our life that are in potential conflict with the plan that God has. Do we have the right, to view th- the right view of things to accept our failure and continue on? Do we persevere, choosing to recognize that my wants may not totally be compatible with God's desires? Do we blame him or harbor anger or bitterness against him? Do we give up our will and settle on God's? substituting his plan, whatever that may be, for my plan. Peter Bond had to step away from something he held dearly. He mentioned the relief in relinquishing it, um, and that he could see the good that happened even after he surrendered, hope overflowing to the direction God chose without him. David, from Samuel, was strengthened enough that he made a new plan, um, and it may not be one that he should have chose. He continued to engage with his mutinous and murderous friends and proceeded on being sure of God's blessing. That sounds crazy. He chose not to see God as the bad guy. He didn't blame or turn away, even when it really got bad, and he could have, by human standards, abandoned God for abandoning him. Instead, he continued to step out in faith within the Lord's authority. It took a change in perspective. That surrender point allows a bright future in spite of a dark failure. We need to recognize that in his goodness, God meets our failure with both his forgiveness and his faithfulness. He's always willing to bring about his plan. Sometimes failure is something that's out of our hands completely. We're helpless to circumstances around us that propel us in the opposite of what we're striving for. And often the desires we have and the failure we experience come down to a my way versus his way kind of thing. Not necessarily a sin issue, but an issue of seeing what we label as failure through different eyes. It isn't just a reframing of things to the positive. It's not simply reclassifying anything that that looks like failure as success. It's not that. 
but it's a worldview shift where the things we think of as failure are purpose-filled in the greater perspective of eternity and God's kingdom plan. There's a significant faith and perseverance element to this. God's strength is absolutely necessary to have patience to see the circumstances through until their ultimate fulfillment. Our weakness, it's a vehicle for God to work. So right where you're at or online, uh, you can start preparing your elements as we head towards communion here. But in talking about this example of strength and weakness, I think the best example of this, the perseverance and failure, the surrender to God's plan over his own, of course, is Jesus. Knowing that the cross and a brutal death was before him, Jesus sat down with his disciples in the midst of the knowledge that everything he preached, his entire ministry career to that point, was now going to be perceived as failure, he took the time to surrender himself to God's power in the moment. He wanted different, but accepted the Father's plan instead. And he shared that moment with his friends, his ministry partners, his community group, if you will. And they all spent time renewing their commitment to the goodness of God through communion. So, can we do the same? Let's recognize the strength of God and the weakness of Jesus and take the bread and the cup. So, Jesus took the cup and said, I won't drink of this again until I return. Take this. Then he took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to call the worship team back up. So maybe some of you today are struggling with an unrealized dream or desire. Like me, maybe you have grief and a sense of failure over mistakes you've made in parenting. Maybe you have an estranged child or a kid who walked away from the faith. Maybe you're dealing with a health crisis that's changed the course of your life. Perhaps your ideas for success for your career haven't come about, and you're wrestling with the disappointment and helplessness of being stuck where you're at. Maybe you've been wrongly, um, deeply wronged by others, and the impact has changed the trajectory of your life completely. Or maybe... You have hurts and failures in the past, from the past, and you're holding on to the bitterness of it all and even blaming God for letting your dreams die. Can I encourage you? Look at that thing through the Father's eyes. He's not trying to steal your hope. He has far more pure desires than we ever do. And he knows that often failure is important in equipping us for the rest of the journey that he's set before us. Surrender that thing to him. Let it go. He has a plan that spans generations and sees so much more than our nearsighted vision allows. Choose to embrace the weakness, the failure, and surrender. So I hope that you take with you the the key points that we touched on this morning. First, lean into the Lord when you're faced with the grief and loss of something you hold dear. He's strong, good, faithful, even when we're weak. Second, failure and broken expectations Yours or other people's for you are an opportunity for God to reveal himself both to you and to those around you. And lastly, 
Follow Jesus' example in laying down, surrendering our own desires when they're counter to the Father's plan. So let's join together in worship, identifying Jesus' weakness and surrender to the Father's strength and faithfulness.